Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm, the third Psalm. You'll find that on page 448 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along in that Bible. I do want to encourage you to have God's Word open this morning. I think you'll find it helpful as we work through these eight verses, verse by verse. I trust it'll be a rich blessing upon us. I'm excited to be able to uh, teach you this Psalm as it ministered greatly into my own heart, and I trust that God would want to present his truth to us today through his word as we continue in our little summer series in the Psalms. Hopefully you found your way to Psalm chapter 3, or excuse me, Psalm, the third Psalm. Uh, Hear now the word of God. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord Sustain me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We trust it is food for our souls. I, th- I believe you would be pleased this morning, would you not, Father, that you might speak to us through your scripture and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you might draw us to you, that you might unfold for us truth for our minds, and truth for our hearts, and truth for our wills, that we might be conformed more into the image of Christ. Even as our, our brother Josh has reminded us this morning, we are as church exists, as you have told us, to make disciples for your glory. We want that to happen today. We want to become increasingly faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus. We think you could do that through your word. For our Lord even prayed to you long ago, did he not, Father? Sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. And so you answer that prayer here today in this little church, Hamilton Baptist Sanctify us in the truth we consider before us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, much of the uh, English Bible that that we have been reading today, and much of the English Bible in which you have uh, studied throughout your life, is indebted to a man named William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English almost 500 years ago in the 1520s. And what I mean by that is uh, even though we have modern translations, right, our translations weren't translated in the 1500s or not even in the 18 or 1900s, but much of the language in which we have is original to Tyndale from the 1520s. For instance, the passage in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that was Tyndale. Or our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was William Tyndale, who 
who translated that passage in that way. Or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's Tyndale. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. William Tyndale wrote those exact words 15 or 500 years ago. Or he went out and wept bitterly. That's Tyndale. So he went out, wept bitterly. The NIV translates it that way. The ESV, the NASB, the New King James, they all, they all say the exact same, same thing. He went out and wept bitterly. One modern translation tries to put its own spin on it, and, it, and they say he went out and cried hard. Right? <laughs> this doesn't work, does it? Now, we've been influenced by Tyndale. Perhaps you don't even know, but much of this Bible is original to his translation. When, when he, uh, he translated the Bible from Latin, or actually from Greek, in, into the English, it was, by the way, against the law when he did it. And therefore, he had to flee in England for continental Europe, where he would live the rest of his days as a fugitive, running from place to place as people were out to arrest him. He was, unfortunately, eventually captured when a man that he loved and confided in named Henry Phillips, on one fateful evening, led him down an alley to awaiting soldiers. And there Tyndale was arrested, and 15 months later, he'd be burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Have you ever been stabbed in the back by someone close to you? Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? If you have, I, I trust there are probably few pains like that pain. It seems to me that life at times is a conflict, that there are battles to be fought, and what a great blessing it is at those times to have friends at your side. Say, we'll we'll get in the foxhole with you. We'll fight with you. How great, then, is the heartbreak when you are receiving enemy fire, and all of a sudden you feel something in your back. And you turn around, and it was one you were certain was a friend, actually was an enemy who has betrayed you, like happened in Tyndale's life. That pain is numbing. But how much worse is it when the one who betrays you is not just simply a friend, but your own flesh and blood? Perhaps even a child or a son. It was in the year 2012 when a 19-year-old Tucker Cipriano broke into his parents' home in the middle of the night with the intent of looking for drug money. He was going to break into the safe, steal whatever he could, and then flee for Mexico. Things did not go as he planned as he and his uh, cohorts in this crime ended up beating his mother severely and his brother and killing his father. It seems very very little things are as horrifying in my mind as perhaps a, a, a son striking down the one who gave them life. We even have a name for it. It's called patricide. Long ago, a man named David experiencing something very similar. A son sought to kill him. His name was Absalom. Not for drug money, but he wanted his father's throne. Of the 73 Psalms in which David has written, 13 of them have a little notation that described the historical occasion that gave rise to that psalm. So you see here in Psalm 3, above verse 1, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now you may not know that that's actually part of the, the canonical text. That's part of the Bible. That's not an editor's translation. Above that, in my Bible, it says, Save me, O my God. Now that's something that the English editors added to kind of give you a, 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 a synopsis of the passage in which you're about to read. But that little, that little phrase of a psalm of David and so forth, 
that's actually from the scripture. So we, we need to understand that this is very helpful for us as we try to get, understand why he wrote Psalm 3. He wrote it when he was fleeing from Absalom, who rose up in this insurrection. In fact, I, I sent out an email this week, I hope, I'm sure many of you got it, that encouraging you to read 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18 that describe uh, Absalom's revolt. And I, in case you didn't, I think it would be helpful, even fun even, uh, if we went to 2 Samuel. I just want to show you a couple of verses to help us, I think it will help us understand Psalm 3. So you, we're going to come back to Psalm 3, we haven't even touched it, right? So we'll go to 2 Samuel chapter, what, 14, we'll start in 14, and try to get our mind around what, what this was like, this revolt by his son Absalom. Absalom is around in chapter 13, but he has this very interesting introduction in chapter 14, if you look at verse 25. It says, now in, in all Israel, in all of Israel, right, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, men, don't you hate it when, you, when, when your, your hair gets so heavy, it just weighs down your head, right? That is the worst, isn't it? And, and so Absalom uh, struggled with this. In fact, you read that passage, and I don't, I don't know if I could read your mind, but I think I, I can understand at least what the men are thinking. We already don't like this guy, right? You know, hair, head full of hair, chiseled jaw, the massive chest. You can see the cape flapping in the wind, can't you? And as Absalom, I trust his parents were very proud of him and thought, okay, our boy is going to accomplish good things and, and had great expectations from him. I don't know, maybe that went to his head. Maybe his, his own glory went to his head. Regardless of what, what's going on, we know he was not content to live in his father's shadow. He coveted his father's throne. And so he began to station himself by the city gate. And when people would come into Jerusalem to seek the king's judgment or the king's counsel, Absalom would stay at the gate and he would see these powerful men and he would say, you know, if I were king, I would rule on your behalf. If I were king, I would do this for you or I would do that for you. I don't know what my father's going to do, but if I were king, I would be on your side. He did that for four years, the Bible says, until eventually he had the support of many undermining his father's authority, as you see in chapter 15 and verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And stealing their hearts, a day came when Absalom amassed an army, an army of thousands coming for his father's throne, indeed for his father's head, and David was taken totally off guard and forced to flee as soon as he heard it, as you see in chapter 15 and verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so up David rises. He knows his son well enough. Absalom is powerful. Perhaps he knows he to be a cruel man. 
and he flees that moment with a handful of loyal men. They would retreat down from Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley and then up over the Mount of Olives, the Bible tells us. And as they're going to add injury to insult, they are taunted by this foul-mouthed man named Shimei. So you look over in chapter 16, and we're thinking about David's flight from Jerusalem. We read in verse 5, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. So this is the kind of guy, you, you've encountered something where these guys were profanity is like their exclamation point. Right? And just this guy wakes up and there's just filth in his mouth and, and, and cursing and cussing just spews out of him. And he's just lobbing all of that at David and not just lobbing his curses, he's lobbing rocks as well. Look in verse 6. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of, the king, of king David and all the people and all the mighty men. And so, so he's pelting uh, David and his soldiers with rocks. Now, I'm not a soldier, but, but I think I'm on good ground to say soldiers don't like being pelted with rocks. Right? And they don't like being cursed at. And so one soldier uh, has a suggestion, as we see in verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Which sounds like a sensible solution to me, doesn't it? Right? Let, let's just end this. And David has other priorities. His priority is to escape. And so he dissuades them, and so Shimei continues. Even in verse 13, you see, So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him and flung the dust. I I don't know if he ran out of rocks, so he's, he's, he's flinging dirt clogs at them, whatever he'd get his hands on, as David is marching for his life. I think this entire event is summarized well. If you look back in chapter 15, And note verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. You see, my friends, this is not simply a bad day for David. This is an adrenaline-pumping, bone-weary through the night, march for your life. David must have thought, who can I trust? Does Absalom have some, some spy in my midst? He would, he would march all night long till he gets to the Jordan, and then only once he crossed the Jordan, thinking he's in relative safety out of being out of the nation of Israel, that he could take a, a break. Right? So this is, this is the life of David, right? Not sure he's going to make it through the night. And, and by the way, it's not, it's, that would be bad enough, but he's not just fearful for his life, and he's not just lost all his possessions, though he has, and he not, has not just been dethroned, though he has. The emotion that David feels most intensely seems to be clear. It is not fear, it is not anxiety, it is not uncertainty, but it is sadness. It's grief. He goes, the Bible says, weeping with his head covered, See, a rebellion would have been bad enough by some distant insurgents, but this came from his own house, his own family, a rebellion led by a son. A son seeks your life, a son whom you love. And it's in that soul-piercing agony 
that David writes Psalm 3. If you ever need to be rescued, Psalm 3 is for you. If you ever need deliverance from sorrow, from betrayal, from heartache, from accusation, from abandonment, God has given us Psalm 3, a psalm of deliverance. And we are reminded at times like this that we need to turn to the Lord and call out for deliverance as we see, first of all, in Psalm 3, David's lament. In the midst of this crisis, David finds a quiet moment and he pours out his heart in prayer, as you see in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, etc. You see, David is deeply disturbed. David, he's an emotional wreck at this time as he considers, it's very clear, the number of his enemies in opposition to him. There are many foes, he says. There are many who are rising up against me. There are many who are taunting me. David, in many ways, seems to feel hemmed in. There's a multiplying horde is just surrounding David. He is, he is outnumbered, and he is overwhelmed, and he pours out his heart unto the Lord. He doesn't keep it to himself. He doesn't just stuff it down. He gets a moment of free time, and he speaks to God about his trouble. In fact, he even tells God about the accusations being made against him. As you see in verse 2, many are saying, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. They're not just attacking his body. In other words, they're attacking his soul. They're attacking his heart. Where is your God now, David? They must have said. We're, 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 you, you know, you're, you're, you're always talking about God, aren't you, David? David, you're always singing about God. You're always saying, well, God has chosen me to be the king of Israel. Well, where is he now? In, in fact, you, you do remember Saul, don't you, David, the king before you, and how he sinned against the Lord, and God turned on him and took the throne from him. And now it's your turn, David. Now sin has caught up with you, David. Now God has abandoned you, David. You have brought this on yourself. And the amazing thing is, is he had. This was directly linked to the sin that David committed with Bathsheba, which is recounted in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember when, when David commits adultery and murder of Bathsheba's honorable husband, Nathan comes to David, and, and he says to David that because of this sin, he says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to one who is close to you, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. In other words, David, just like you lied with another man's wife, so others will do that to you. For you did it secretly, Nathan says. The Lord says, do Nathan, I should say. But I will do this thing before all Israel. And when David flees, he leaves his concubines behind who are seized, and Nathan's prophecy is fulfilled. And what we see here is, is that sin has implications. Sin has consequences on us Christians. And I think this is important for us to, to balance with the, the, the overwhelming grace in which we have received from the Lord. That you and I cannot look at sin and say, you know, well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I'm forgiven. And I know I probably shouldn't do this, but it doesn't really matter because I, I'm forgiven. And God is taking care of that. I'm covered with his grace. Now, of course, as a Christian, you are forgiven. But... As a Christian, you will reap what you sow. Your sin has implications for you. Now, don't misunderstand me. God will not, in the final verdict, 
judge you for your sin. But your sin does have implications in this life. God does discipline for sin. I think it was Alistair Begg who told the story of a boy who rebelled against his father. And his father says, as, as, a, as a way of discipline, I'm going to go out to the woodshed and I'm going to drive a nail into the woodshed door. And the boy thought, well, I'm getting off pretty easy here. Right? And so this is what his father did. And the boy sinned and father drove another nail and he went to it and the boy sinned and sinned and sinned and father drove more and more nails until one day the boy went out to the woodshed and saw the door was covered with nails and it broke him. So he saw this vivid imagery of his own rebellion against his father. And he, he went to his father and he says, Father, I, I am so sorry for what I've done. Will you forgive me? And his father, being a Christian man, said, of course, my son, I will forgive you. In fact, I want to show you that your sins are forgiven. And he went out to that woodshed door and one by one he pulled those nails out. Just, we're going to take those down. You need no reminder of your sin anymore. And yet later on the day, he found his son crying at the woodshed. And he said, why are you crying, son? And his son replied, The nails are gone, but the holes remain. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice that the nails are gone, right? We are forgiven. But please do not mistake that for the understanding that the sin that you and I commit does not have implication in our lives and in the lives of others. Right? You, you, you may be forgiven, but sin will leave a mark on your soul. A hole will be left. Consequences remain until God comes and cleanses all of that. And now I understand when we talk about this, the devil comes and he begins to whisper. And maybe he's even doing this to you right now. And he's telling you, you're such a wretch, you're so filthy. And he's just bringing to mind all these sins. Please understand me. God holds no record of your sin. You've been clean. You could tell the devil right now to shut his trap. Right? Do not let him whisper. He never brings you truth. And you can do that and at the same be honest and say what David faced and what we at times face comes because of the choices we have made. But not always, right? Sometimes we face trouble not because of our sin, but because of someone else's sin. And if there is trouble in your life, let me just say, it's sort of safe to say it's because someone has sinned. There is sin involved. And if there might be in the workplace, there might be rumors and lies. In the workplace, might be warfare. There might, you might have a rebellious child. You might have a disloyal spouse, right? And sometimes you can see your role in that. Sometimes you can't. Regardless, David teaches us that we are to pour our soul out to God in the midst of that. Cry out to him. Bring it to the Lord as David shows us. And as we do, we will find confidence in God. I I'm astonished by the change in tone when we begin verse 3 as we consider, secondly, David's confidence. Look what it says. But, he says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So David was lamenting, and, and now he seems to have this great confidence and raises the question, what's happened in David's life? Why, why this change from verse 2 to verse 3? And it seems to me that David has taken his eyes off his many enemies that are surrounding him and now places upon the Lord. And his despair has been replaced with hope. Everything seems to look different as he gazes upon God. And he says to God, you are my shield. That is, David is confident in the Lord's protection of him. He says, you're going to guard me. 
You're going to block the blows coming in at me. And not just a shield, the normal kind of shield that you have out in front of you. God is a shield about you, the Bible says. His shield surrounds you. I don't know what kind of shield that is. Sounds pretty, pretty wonderful that there's a shield even when the blows come to the side or even from the back. David says, you're going, to, you're going to guard me. You're my shield, God. You ever pray for God to be your shield? You ever pray for God to protect you? Well, I've studied this passage a number of weeks ago in, in preparation for this message, and it has burdened my heart as, as we're walking through this, or we're actually riding this roller coaster, if you will, uh, with our foster daughter, and, and there's just injustice circling her. And we're, we, we, as my wife and I pray in the morning, we often are, are praying, God, will you be a shield over this little girl? Will you be a protector for her? God is a shield. And I wonder how many of the enemy's arrows have never made it through. Arrows you're not even aware of. And one day, I wonder if he'll, he'll show us all that he protected us from, how he has gone before us and is behind us and is a shield about us. You're my shield and you are my glory, David says there in verse 3, which is interesting, isn't it, that David in this situation can speak of his own glory. He has no throne and he has no army and he has no home and he has, you know, he has man has no shoes, Okay. And he's running barefoot through the wilderness talking about his own glory, right? He's lost political power. He's lost the people's approval. He's lost a massive fortune. He's lost his family's love. All it seems that David has at this time is shame, except what is the one thing he has not lost? He has not lost the Lord. You are right. He has gone. And he looks and surveys all that he has lost, and yet what does he remain? And he says, what I have left is the Lord. You are my God, you are my glory, and that is enough for me. David has been humbled. He cannot look at himself anymore and say, well, you are a glorious man, can he? He's not impressive. He goes from a from a king of Israel to a barefooted fugitive, and he has no glory in himself, but he says, God, you are my glory. You are what I live for. You are, you are my substance. You are, you are my approval. You are, you are all that I need. And I, and I think what's true for David is true for us. I, I don't know if I'll be the first to tell you this, but my friends, you are not that impressive. Right? Nor am I. Yeah, it doesn't, shouldn't matter much, should it? We shouldn't live for the that others would think us to be glorious. Don't you think I'm wealthy or powerful or talented or godly or whatever it is? That should not be what we live for. David says, I live for, for you, God. I live for your, you're my glory. I, I live for you. In fact, you are, he says, thirdly, you're my shield and you're my glory, the lifter of my head. You ever lift somebody's head? You ever say to someone, hey, get your head up? I, I've, I was talking to my son last night about this passage, and I said, has Daddy ever said to you, um, get your head up? Hey, lift your head up. And, and he said, yeah. And I, I asked him, what do you think I mean by that? And he said something to the effect, well, don't be a screw-up, or something like that. <laughs> so we, <laughs> that's not what I mean, right? That's not what God means. Right? When I'm coaching Little League, I'll tell some of my boys, hey, get your head up. Right? They'll, they'll watch strike three or a ball will go between their legs and they get their glove in the dirt despite hours and hours of telling them to. Right? And, and their head will go down. They'll be, they'll be staring at their navel and what will coach you? Get your head up. What are we saying? Listen, you can do this. There's more game to play. That's behind you. I'm, I'm proud of you. I trust in you. I know you can do this. Lift your head. And so David's head hangs low. He's, he's thinking, poor me, woe is me. He's staring at his navel. 
He's walking uh, this forced march with his head downcast. And God, he says, God, you come. And what do you do? You lift my head. You say, David, get your head up. Listen, as great as it was for David to be king, as great as it was to have the love of his people, even as great as it was to have the love of his son, which he's lost in, he says, God, I have your approval. God, I, I have your pleasure. You lift my head. So here's a man who is pelted with stone, and he says, God, you're my shield. A man who is humiliated and says, God, you're my glory. A man who is discouraged, running with his head down and weeping. He says, God, you're the lifter of my head. What's changed? Well, the only thing that's changed is his thinking. He's focusing on God. In fact, the question that raises in my mind is, how can David know this? I mean, how can David, how, how does David say, running from this political coup led by your son, that God, you're my shield? Of all the times I think that God might not be his shield, it would be at that time, wouldn't it? Or how does he, how does he know that God is, 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 is proving of him, that God is, if you will, is proud of him? I mean, can you go to God and say, okay, God, you, listen, I know that I've committed adultery. And I know that I have been instrumental in the murder of a very good man. And I know in many ways I have failed as a father, but at least you're proud of me. I mean, those don't seem to go together. What's going on? I mean, David has failed in monumental ways. But he says, but I know that, that you, you, want, you have, have approved me. You lift my head. How can he say that? I'll tell you, every religion in this world, save one that I know of, teaches that God's approval is based upon what we have done or what we have avoided. David has done very little of what he is supposed to do. And yet he says, God, you lift my head. How can he be so sure? I wonder if the answer is found in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, he says, and he answered me from his holy hill. David says, "I'm, I'm crying. I'm crying for help. He prayed and prayed and prayed. And the following verses, you'll actually see the answer to his prayer. But here we just learn he kept praying. And I find it very interesting. You notice where he prayed to? Say, God, you answer me from where? From the holy hill. Well, what's on this holy hill? Is it not the tabernacle? What takes place at the tabernacle? Is that not where God atones for our sin? My friends, we don't pray towards a holy hill, do we? God doesn't answer us from a holy hill. We don't, we don't, we don't pray towards a place. We pray to a person, right? The ultimate sacrifice. So if you want to know how can I know today in light of what I've done that God is the lifter of my head, that God is my shield, that God is my glory, well, you can know the same way that David knew. You can know because your sins have been atoned for in Christ, right, by a gracious God. You can know because Jesus Christ has come to bear the penalty for your sin and took that upon himself. So all the sin in which we have committed has been cast upon Christ and he has has paid for it all in order that God might approve us as we are united in Christ. And so scripture will say that God has cast your sins behind his back or he has thrown your sin into the sea. Or he has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. That he has promised to remember your sin no more. He has stomped your sin under his foot. He took the record of your sin, put it in the hand of Jesus, and nailed it to the cross. And now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you are covered in the blood of Christ. Though your sins were as scarlet, he has made them white as snow. And so you can go to God even in your sin. If you have united yourself with Christ, 
and say, God, you too are the lifter of my head because I'm in Jesus. And then David here, he says there at the end of verse 4, you see that, that, that little selah, it's the second time he said that there. It's a musical term, we think, that means for the instrumentalist to continue to play while the singers pause to think about what they have just sung. So whenever you see a, a selah or selah, um, you, it, it's God's invitation to say, hey, think about this for a moment. And I think you would do well to think about this for a moment. That your confidence in God is not because of your goodness, but because of God's grace. And knowing this, it might lead you to peace, as it seems to do in David's life. As you consider, thirdly, David's peace. David believed the Lord is going to sustain him through all this, as we see in verse 5. I lay down and slept, he says. Now, I I kind of think that's a miracle. Uh, Some of you have difficulty sleeping as your life goes, right? You, You toss and turn, don't you? Wrestle with that pillow, staring at the ceiling, back and forth, up and down, and all the rest, right? David has an army out to kill him. David has a son who's rebelled against him. David has just been pelted with stones, and his ears are full of cursing. You ever been pelted with stones before? You think that might keep you up a little bit? You might want to think about that. You might ruminate that. David just lost his job. He's lost his home. He's, he's on the run. He's not sure where he will go. He is not sure whether he will eat tomorrow. But one thing that David does have is sleep. And I just simply think that's amazing. Is that not a miracle? Right? I mean, how can David sleep? Well, it's because of what he knows about God. It's almost as if David read Psalm 121 in verse 3, which says, He who keeps you will not slumber. So God won't sleep, and as if David had a conversation with the Lord. He said, well, well, Lord, you know, uh, there's no reason for us both to stay awake. And so if if you're going to stay awake, then I'll I'll just go to bed and I'll sleep, and you could watch over me if that's okay with you. And he, he goes and he sleeps. God gives him this great peace to sleep in the middle of this situation. And then you want to see another miracle. Read on, verse 5. I woke again. (laughs) Right? Miracle number two. Why, Why did David wake? Well, look, read on. For, for the Lord sustained me. So I wonder, Christian, who woke you this morning? You might say, well, my kids, of course, as they do every morning. Or the dog downstairs, well, maybe there's some truth in that, but I think far more fundamentally, it is the Lord who woke you. For it is he who sustained you. And perhaps we would do well to learn as we open our eyes in the morning to say, thank you, Lord. Wow, I, I got to wake up this morning. I get another day. That's your gift. The only reason I slept last night and the only reason I wake this morning is as David has taught me, for you have sustained me. And so this great peace that he has in his heart. And this brings him, moves him forward even into the, to the animosity and the insurrection which he's facing, as you see in verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. So he looks to the Lord for strength against the thousands. In fact, if I remember correctly, Absalom has 12,000 people in his army. David at this time has 400. Now those aren't, I'm not, again, I'm not a soldier, but those don't sound like good odds to me. 12,000 against 400. And yet David looks at the thousands of people, the thousands that he was lamenting in verse 1. You remember that? Look what's happened to him. And now in verse 6, he's also talking about the thousands. But at this point, he's saying, I will not be afraid of the thousands. I will not be afraid of those who have set themselves all around me. 
Right? I don't think he's underestimating the obstacles before him or the enemies uh, before him. But it, 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 with God, it doesn't matter if you have 12,000 or 120,000 or 185,000, as the Assyrians once did. Right? With God, numbers is meaningless. And David seems to have taken this to heart, and great peace is flooding into his soul. Just as it happened many, many years later, a man named Martin Luther, as you know his story, we considered it last year in depth. Luther was summoned by the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, to Worms there to, um, to account, to answer for what the Roman Catholic Church considered his heretical teaching. And it's there in Worms that, that Luther will make his famous defense of the gospel, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But the, before he did that, he was traveling to, to Worms, and he was made known of the last reformer to be summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor, was a man named John, John Huss, who was given no time to defend his teaching, but was promptly burned at the stake for a heretic. And so many people said, Luther, do not go, stay away. In fact, even as Luther approached Worms, just outside the city, a final messenger arrived and warned him not to enter into the city, in which Luther replied to him, even if there should be as many devils in Worms as tiles upon the housetops, still I will enter it. Many years later, when Luther was dying, a few, a few days before his death, he recalled that event. And he said, I was then undaunted. I feared nothing. Is, is he just being unreasonable, you think? I don't think so. I think Luther, like David, was given this peace, as the Bible tells of it in the book of Philippians, a peace that surpasses all understanding, even when thousands come against you and, and all your understanding says you should not have peace, and when the obstacles before you are insurmountable and, 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 and the whole world says you should be filled with anxiety and fear, God says, no, I want to give you peace at that time, even that you might sleep through the night and wake in the morning, right, when, when, when they oppose us. Or as Luther put it, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And it's this triumph that it seems to David turns to last as we see this last stanza of this psalm and David sings about his deliverance. So consider fourthly David's deliverance there in verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. This is David's summons to God to go to war. This is a war cry for David. I don't know, have you ever prayed something like this? Arise, O Lord. Do you ever tell God to get up? That's bold. It's time to act, God, David says. Right? You ever literally shout, save me, O my God? David did. As Moses did, by the way. As they were wandering in the desert and the cloud of God's glory would go before him, Moses would cry out. The book of Numbers, I think, tells us, Rise up, O Lord, Moses would say. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. Well, in David's language, he says there in verse 7, Will you strike their jaw and break their teeth? Now, I think, it, I think it's important to realize that this, this imagery he's using was used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of, of striking a lion in, in the face, not to kill the lion, but to free the prey. And so David, I don't think, is so much asking for God to destroy his enemies. In fact, when his army would go out to fight against Absalom, he would counsel them, please, above all, just spare my son. Do not take his life. And so David's not asking for, the, for, for them to be destroyed. He's just asking God to defeat them in such a way in which the, their, their enemies, or David and his people, can be freed. 
And by the way, the, the rebellion would end. You could, I, in fact, I, I, what a great way to spend your afternoon if you haven't read this. You could get in 2 Samuel and read chapter 17 and 18, and you could see how the rebellion ends. And this prayer is, is actually answered that David is saved. He, God does rise up against him. In fact, you notice verse 8. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the salvation which David received was from the Lord. Just, just as it was when God defeated a giant with a sling in the hand of a little boy. So at this time, God would defeat an overwhelming army through bad advice, a branch of an oak tree, and yes, a head full of hair. It's an amazing story as God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord, David prays. And he was saved. He was delivered. When we think about that, I think it raises a difficult question. And the question is this. Sometimes God doesn't always rescue us from trouble. Right? Sometimes the rock misses the giant and the giant kills you. Is that not true? For instance, we read in the book of Acts. Peter was in prison. An angel shows up and frees Peter miraculously from prison. But you read a few days earlier, the apostle James was in prison and there was no angel. In fact, he was beheaded by Herod. And we see this over and over again. One reformer is summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor. He defends his teaching and goes away free. Another is burned at the stake. Two young men from the same church, they go off to war. Both families pray. Only one returns. The other does not. Two women pray for their marriage. One man, husband, repents. The other does not. God, in other words... I, I think Scripture teaches, and I think life bears witness to the truth, that God does not always deliver in the way that we might want. He doesn't always save in the way in which the trouble is taken care of. He doesn't always rescue like he rescued David. So what, what does he mean there in verse 8? That salvation belongs to the Lord. If all aren't saved in, 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 in the way in which David was rescued, I would suggest to you that through the Holy Spirit that guided David in penning this psalm, that God was pointed to even a greater salvation than, a, than being freed from a political coup. I don't, when you read this psalm, and um, maybe I just spend a lot of time in it, but it seems to the shadow of Christ falls upon it. And what I mean by that is that Jesus, too, faced betrayal and insurrection by those close to him, didn't he? He went through something very similar to David. In fact, he too, Jesus, made his way across the Mount of Olives in the midst of cursing, did he not? And I wouldn't be surprised if there was pelting stones either. That he too heard his enemies unite their voices in accusation and taunt, did he not, as he hung upon the cross? Where is your God? There is no salvation for you, Jesus. God will not save you. God has turned against you. That he too, when circled by many, many foe all around him, Oh, Jesus, too, he laid down and slept. And he, too, woke again three days later from the dead. That's the salvation in which I think this psalm ultimately points to. That's our ultimate hope, that we, too, shall, shall, shall wake because we have faith in Christ. In fact, you notice how this psalm ends. Look at that last little phrase. David 
has this little prayer. It's very interesting. Your prayer, your blessing, excuse me, be on your people. All of a sudden, this nowhere found in this psalm. At the very end, he adds this little tagline. And by the way, I want you to bless your people. And, and David hears, at the end, he's not praying for himself. In fact, maybe throughout the entire psalm, he's not ultimately praying for himself, but for his people. For he knows that Absalom would not be a righteous and godly king. And so in some sense, David is saying, deliver me, rescue me. Why? In order to bless your people. Because I'm the one that you have chosen. I'm the one who will, who will rule righteously and I will rule on your behalf. So deliver me, save me so that your people may be blessed. Well, is that not why God delivered Christ? Delivered him all the way from death. Why? For the blessing of his people. Right, He sought the ultimate salvation, bringing him through death in order that his people might be blessed with salvation that would last forever and ever and ever. Have you experienced that salvation? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins? All of them. Everyone you've done in the past and done today and, and will do in the future, they'll be wiped clean. They'll be taken care of. You see, God has loved this world so much that he would send his son into this world and his son would live a perfect life without sinful thought, word, or deed, and yet be nailed to a cross. And there he would be not just punished by men, but he would be punished by his Father in heaven himself, not for his sin, for he had none, but punished for mine and for all who would trust in him. And three days later, the, the Lord was put in the grave, and three days later he rose victoriously out of the grave. And now he invites all with nail-pierced hands, offering grace and mercy to all who would bow their knee to Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you want to know what salvation you ought to be seeking. And what verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. You ought to be seeking that salvation, salvation from your sin and the wrath of God, salvation that brings you into eternity with fellowship with a holy and powerful and wonderful God. This is what God does. This is the salvation that he offers. See, God might not save you as he saved David. Or you, you might end up losing your job, even if you pray for salvation. You might lose your family. You might lose your friends. Despite my prayers, our foster daughter might not receive justice. That, that's reality. We'll keep praying, but it's in the hands of the Lord. But here's the promise. Here's the promise that God has sent his son to die for. That though you lie down, Christian, in trouble or not, you shall wake again in this life or the next, for the Lord will sustain you. And that's the promise that I want to rejoice in as we come to this supper meal. That we might remember and rejoice that Christ has paid for everything for us. And so, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper in which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. We come in remembrance today that our Lord Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to his bitter and shameful death on the cross. We remember through this meal that by Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he has established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted by God and never forsaken by him.
we come to this meal to have communion with him. That Christ, too, has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. And so in the bread, the Lord makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto eternal life. And in the cup, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. And lastly, we come in hope, don't we? I hope your heart will be filled with hope. Believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge, aren't they not? Of a foretaste of a heavenly feast, of which one day, if we are in Christ, we shall all partake when his kingdom has fully come. And with with unveiled faces, the Bible says, we shall see him and made like him forever and ever. So in light of those truths, uh, may you take a moment of silent prayer and giving thanks for this meal, repenting of any known sin, that you might come to remember and to commune to have your hearts filled with hope. Let us pray together.